Throughout church history, there have been people who have truly beheld God, like we just sang about, in the person of Jesus Christ, and have found his glory, his gospel, to be so captivating, so glorious, so impactful upon their own lives that they were compelled to leave behind all that was familiar to them, to leave family behind with the risk of never seeing them again, so that this gospel could go forward to unreached peoples. They very much possessed that same passion as the Apostle Paul, who in Romans tells us that his desire is to preach Christ where he had not yet been named. One such individual is the man by the name of John Patton. His story is described in detail, actually by John Piper on the Desiring God website. Let me encourage you to read the account of his life in full. It it, it is astounding. But John Patton uh, was born in the early 1800s in Scotland, where he served as a missionary in Glasgow among what we would call like the inner city for 10 years. And, And he had a pretty productive fruitful ministry there amongst his own people. However, he left that ministry because in his own words, he continually heard the wail of perishing heathen in the South Seas. Specifically, he was burdened for the souls of people on a cluster of islands off of the coast of Australia known as the New Hebrides Islands. And 20 years prior to John's arrival at the New Hebrides Islands, a group of missionaries landed there, and within minutes of their arrival, they were killed and eaten by the local people there. That's the place that John wanted to go share Christ? Other people shared this same skepticism. Uh, Famously, there was this older man in his church, who came up to him and said, what are you thinking? You're going to leave Scotland to go to the New Hebrides Islands? You are going to be eaten by cannibals. And John's reply, I've actually put it on the screen here for us, is astounding. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own body is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. What a response, right? It is obvious to us what was important to John Patton, preaching Christ to those who had not heard, bringing honor and glory to his Savior. And as we might expect, his journey, his mission, was met with hardship. Within months of his arrival at the New Hebrides Islands, his infant son and his wife both died. And he was left there to do ministry Alone, He was frequently ravaged 
by disease. He was often threatened by the natives there. You can read accounts of him, uh, guns being pointed at him, him hiding in a tree on one occasion. Uh, on one occasion, there was a man, I think might have been pretending to be sick, so that he would come pray for him, and when he got close, pulled a knife on him. John was stuck on the island until the next supply ship could arrive and take him off. And we might look at any one of these things and say, is this really worth it? God, I'm trying to serve you. And yet hardship after hardship befalls me. Well, after 40 years of some ministry on one particular island with his second wife, it is said that that whole island came to know Christ. And again, we ask, now is it worth it? For John, the answer to that question was pretty simple. He said, if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar to Christ that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. And can I ask you this morning, has the cross of Jesus Christ gripped your heart in this manner? Where you would be willing to say, Lord, I'm yours. I'll go. I'll do whatever it takes if that means suffering and hardship and these terrible things that we look at John and say, yikes, how did you deal with that? Say, God, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm your guy. I am so burdened for the cause of those who do not know Jesus. And if there's a part of you this morning that would say, hey, you know, I'm really not quite there yet. I'm a little intimidated, honestly, by what that might require of me. Let me encourage you, we're going to look at the scriptures this morning at a guy who very much had an up and down uh, experience in his own commitment to Christ. And yet, as the gospel took root in his heart, we see a boldness in sharing Christ that is unheard of in our day. Uh, so, so turn with me now to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 begins with the well-known story of the lame man who was healed at the gate of the temple, and his day began pretty normally. He's sitting there asking random passerby if they would have any extra change that they can spare him, and he sees two dudes walking towards him and probably asks, the same question he's asked hundreds of times prior to this, hey, do you have any extra coins you can spare me? And if you know this story, you know that these two guys are none other than Peter and John. And Peter utters those famous words in verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And lo and behold, this guy literally gets up Starts walking, the text even says he's leaping around, and normally this is where the record of a miracle stops. A person gets healed, uh, they're all happy about it, it's a nice happy ending to the story, and then we move on. That's all we really get in, in the course of a description of a miracle, and yet this story is different in that it continues. Continues. 
We don't often get to see what comes next, but in this case we do. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by your own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So the swarm of people run over to Peter and John as they see this man who they probably passed on their way into the temple. All of a sudden, he's walking, he's jumping. They're like, what in the world is going on? And Peter sees this crowd of people and he says, hey, what better time to share the good news of Jesus? Notice his boldness again in verse 14. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. He's not pulling any punches here. He's saying, you guys killed the Messiah. And it is that same man, Jesus, that is the cause or the occasion for this miracle that you have seen today. And you know, sometimes I was just thinking about this. We wait for like the perfect opportunity to share the gospel. We wait for someone to initiate it or for all the cards to fall into place before we finally say, okay, yeah, I'll share the gospel with you. All the, you know, it seems to be the perfect opportunity. And, and Peter, he's just like, there's a crowd. I'm going to take this miracle and redirect the conversation to Jesus and present him boldly. And, and, and what's particularly interesting to me is that twice... In the span of a couple of verses, I believe it's verse 13 and 14, Peter twice accuses the people of denying Jesus. Peter knows a little something about denying Jesus himself, doesn't he? Just a couple months prior to this, it's the same guy, Peter, who three times denies having any association with Jesus who, in an act of self-preservation, really like calls down an oath or a curse upon himself and says, I'll be cursed if I have any association with Christ. He, he wants nothing to do with the proceedings of the trial that are happening there. He wants to create as much difference between he and Jesus. And it is the same Peter who, in verse 19, is now boldly proclaiming, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Do, do you see like the 180 that has taken place in his life from just a couple months prior to this boldness? Turn to Jesus. The, the story actually continues into chapter 4 here. We see in verse 2 that he gets the attention of the religious leaders. It says that they're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and apparently this is some sort of crime because they're put in jail for it. And they spend the night in jail, and the next 
day they're brought before the high priest and his family. Verse 6 tells us who that is. It's Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. And they're here to interrogate Peter about these miracles, the events of the previous day that got this crowd all worked up, these people that are just clamoring to know what has happened. Look at Peter's reply that begins in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well." This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And as Brandon reminded us, can I remind you guys again that these names should be pretty familiar to us? Annas and Caiaphas. It was at Caiaphas' house that Jesus' trial took place right when he was condemned and sent along to the other leaders. And here, Peter and John are calling them out to their face and saying, you guys killed Jesus. And he's raised from the dead. He's alive. There's salvation in him alone. And for Annas and Caiaphas, their worst fears are being realized. This movement that they had tried so hard to suppress, even perhaps going as far as we read in the Gospels to perpetuate this lie that the disciples came and stole the body, all of a sudden, this is really gaining some traction here. I mean, people are still talking about this Jesus who they killed and who is alive again. And from their perspective, they need to nip this in the bud as soon as possible before things spiral even further out of control this talk about Jesus. Look at the command that they give to Peter and John in verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And as we finish up this first teaching time, I want you to notice their response in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You cannot put a lid on the gospel. It will not be suppressed by threats of religious rulers. For Peter and John, they saw Jesus killed and rise from the dead. This message is too good for them to just keep to themselves. Uh, for, for similarly, when people have experienced its transformative power, when they have assurance of sins forgiven, of peace with God and new life in Christ, we cannot help but talk about this. And in this case, as we'll do just right now, sing about it. we continue to see the ripple effects of this one miracle of one lame person being healed by Peter and John through chapter 3, 
4, it's still going on here in chapter 5, what has just taken place through this declaration that it was faith in Jesus that was the occasion for this miracle. We pick up our story in uh, verse 12, where we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. If you remember back in chapter 2, we didn't look at that, but that's the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls are added in one day to the church. In chapters 3 and 4, we're told that that number is brought up to 5,000. Here in chapter 5, we are seeing that multitudes of men and women are added to the Lord. And we would simply conclude that the advance of the gospel cannot be stopped by empty threats of these religious rulers. God's word is powerful. The message of Jesus takes root in human hearts. However, Annas and Caiaphas... They don't live under a rock. They catch wind of what has been happening, where these believers have been meeting. They've had enough of that. And so we read in verse 17 that the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. This is the second time now these guys have been arrested and put in prison for preaching. And yet this time, they don't even have to spend the night there. Look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. We might think that the angel would break them out of prison and say, all right, guys, come on, shuffle out of here quietly. Maybe go, you know, move out of the country for a little bit and lie low until things blow over. But the angel tells them what? Go right back to where you were preaching yesterday and continue preaching this word of life. What a time to be a Christian. Imagine the boldness of these apostles as they are seeing the message of the gospel taking root in people's hearts by the thousand. And even imprisonment cannot stop this message. An angel comes and gets them and says, go right back to where you were. Keep preaching this good news. Well, well, you can imagine the high priest's surprise the next morning when the cell is opened and it's empty. And these guys are right back in the temple where they were the day before. And so he like rounds them all up and he tells, and he begins to question them again. We read that in verse 28. He's saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. He's saying, don't you guys remember? We literally just told you like a couple days ago, stop preaching. Stop teaching in this name and you're doing it again? And Peter, former denier, now turned bold witness for Christ 
answers in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Over and over and over again, as Peter has opportunity before any audience, he is quick to tell them, you guys killed Jesus. He's bold in his witness, but he always brings it back around. As verse 31 says, he is the leader and savior who offers repentance and forgiveness of sins. And when the religious leaders hear this, they are absolutely incensed. They are furious at this message. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And perhaps they would have had a man, a Pharisee rather, named Gamaliel not intervened with some pretty wise counsel. He says, listen, movements like this have arisen in the past. They seem to have a a large following, but when the leader dies, they kind of fizzle out. So his advice in verse 38 is, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Uh, Honestly, that's pretty solid advice. He's just saying, listen, if this is another one of those flash-in-the-pan moments, you really have nothing to worry about. Eventually, this message will just kind of fade into non-existence. People will forget about it. But the opposite is also true. Look what he says in verse 39. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even found to be opposing God. So they took his advice. And I'm pretty sure that the prospect for these religious rulers of them perhaps opposing God is enough for them to say, okay, Gamaliel, maybe you're onto something. We'll just let it rest and, and see if anything comes of it. So instead, in verse 40, they do let them go, but not before, we read, they beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Twice now, in as many chapters, the disciples are told, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And here... Additionally, they're beaten. Now, depending on the conviction with which I hold a particular belief, a beating is enough for me to shut up about something, right? Uh, I mean, let's say I was promoting this idea that, you know, vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate and someone beats me up for it. You're probably not going to hear me talk about that again. But the disciples' response to these threats and these beatings is pretty telling. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
rejoicing and suffering aren't often words that we think belong in the same sentence. Yet these guys knew, as Peter says, that to share in the sufferings of Christ is to be expected for a Christian. And they count it a joy to be beaten for their faith. And do they stop talking about this because they were intimidated? Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Rather than being intimidated and saying, okay, okay, you win, you beat us up. Every single day, publicly in the temple, privately house to house, they are proclaiming Christ is Jesus. He's the Messiah. Listen to him. Oh, listen to our message. And I'd like to make one final observation from this chapter. Gamaliel said, remember his advice? If this is from man, it's going to peter out. And I think his counsel rings true. Because here, a couple thousand years later, we're still talking about it. This is evidence that this is no mere ploy of man. This is of God. And even today, around the world, there are Christians in closed or hostile countries who are worshiping our Savior. The gospel cannot be bound or stopped by mankind's threats and their attempts to stifle it, to suppress it, It is going forth all around the world, even this morning. Let's lift our voices then in affirming these truths, which we cannot contain inside of us. I hope that your heart has been stirred this morning as we have just sung these glorious truths and just like belted them out. Uh, I have a question for you, kind of piggybacking off of the language of Acts chapter 4, what Brandon was just reminding us during our singing time. Uh, I want to turn the direction of the service inward now and ask this question, are you talking about what you have seen and heard. Is it something that still excites you? That cannot be contained within you when you ponder your own forgiveness of sins and see the plight of lost people, helpless, blinded by their own sin? Are you motivated to tell them about the Jesus who died to save them? Much like Peter, do you possess that boldness that says, I will not be silenced because what I have heard and seen in the person of Christ is too great to be quiet about? Maybe a simpler question, do you find it easy to talk about Jesus? You know, we talk a lot about what we love, what excites us, what has impacted us. Could people observe our conversations and conclude, yeah, that person loves Jesus? 
I guess I'm just getting that. Is it bubbling out of us from the overflow of our own hearts that Jesus saves? And you didn't know this message. I, I think that unfortunately at times we have become too familiar with these truths of the gospel. They kind of just exist in this headspace, but I wonder how often or how regularly those truths are making its way into our hearts. Certainly singing the songs we've sung today helps to stimulate us a little bit. Like, yeah, this is true. I've experienced my chains being broken and the sin that once bound me no longer holds me. But I do wonder if sometimes we forget that our sins haven't just been swept under a rug and hidden, but it is Jesus who has forgiven them by his own blood. That at the moment of conversion, our eternal destiny changed from being on the path towards hell and separation and condemnation at the just wrath of God to being turned a total 180 to being reconciled to God and hope of eternal life with him. And that hope doesn't just exist in the future, but the hope of Christ gives us purpose and meaning in this life. Uh, Has that captured our hearts? What we need are constant reminders which draw our often busy and cluttered minds thinking about the next thing or the next assignment or project and just to quiet them and reflect again and again on what the Lord has done for us. And I think the Lord knows our propensity for forgetting things because he's instituted an ordinance which its express purpose is that we remember. And I think by now you know that I'm talking about communion So we are going to observe communion together this morning, and we are going to remember. So first off, Jesus says about the bread, that it was his body which he's given for us. Can I remind you why Jesus had a body in the first place? He left heaven, humbled himself, Philippians 2 says, became one of us, was our representative, much like Adam was representative of the human race, and led us all into sin. So to Jesus, fully God and fully man, was our representative dying in our place to help us be reconciled to God. Can can I remind you of what his physical body endured? He was spit upon, hit, a crown of thorns jammed onto his head, his body beaten to a pulp, pegs hammered into his hands and into his feet. The sight of it would have made you nauseous. And we might ask, what has someone done to deserve this type of treatment? For their body to be totally marred beyond human appearance, as Isaiah says. And Isaiah is quick to remind us that what we saw of Christ on the cross was not because of anything that he had done, 
of what we had done. We read that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and we were the ones upon whom the verdict was declared guilty, and it is Christ who bore the punishment. His body was given for us. And so before we eat collectively of this bread, I would like us to take 30 seconds and just quietly reflect on our own sinfulness, which necessitated the death of Christ, him bearing our punishment. I would like you to remember how Romans 5 talks about how we would have a really hard time dying for someone who's a good man. And yet God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So let's just take 30 seconds and contemplate those truths and we will eat this together. Lord, it is beyond our comprehension that you, the creator, would become the creation. Take on this frail human flesh. Be a servant to all, to the point of death, so that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, as we contemplate the brutality of the cross, help us to remember that it should have been us there. Lord, I pray that by our collective participating in this, we would be just giving public testimony that we are yours, that we have experienced the saving grace, and that we are recommitting ourselves this morning to following you, to being bold witnesses like Peter, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and open your cup now. Jesus said, this is my body, remember me. When we come to the cup, we're told that it is representative of the blood of the new covenant. And Hebrews is careful to inform us that at the inauguration of each of the covenants, both old and new, blood was shed. Death was present. In the case of the old covenant, it was the shed 
blood of bulls and goats that happened over and over and over again, year in and year out. So much bloodshed. And yet the harsh reality of what this accomplished rings in the book of Hebrews, where it is declared that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the blood of the new covenant, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, it is declared of him in 1 John 1, that the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the blood of the new covenant. Whereas the old covenant hinged on these sacrifices that could only make partial reconciliation to God, the new covenant rests solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so again, we'll take 30 seconds here and consider some truths about the new covenant, namely that it is sufficient It's described as eternal in Hebrews. Never again is another sacrifice going to have to be offered because Jesus' sacrifice is enough. And he is the high priest who mediates this new covenant in which forgiveness of sins is made possible. Let's take 30 seconds again and pray. Father, as we consider the shed blood of Christ, help us to never take it for granted. Scriptures are clear that the wages of sin is death, and so it is puzzling to us that Jesus would die until we remember that it was our death that he took upon himself the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who shed his blood for our forgiveness of sins. Lord, let these truths loom large in our minds. Help us to be bold witnesses of this good news of the gospel, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Jesus says this is representative of my blood. Remember it. I hope that after the songs we've sung this morning, the truths we've considered from God's word today, that we have just been reminded of the fact 
that the gospel is not ours to hoard. We are not gatekeepers of the good news who gets to determine, well, you're deserving of it and you're not. This message is for everyone. All around us, people are blinded by their sin. Scripture says they are dead in their trespasses. It's becoming more and more evident that this is the case. If you were at Old Home Day or the car show, we're seeing these things. Our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, dead in their trespasses. They need to know this good news about Jesus. Pray that God would give us hearts of compassion for lost souls around us. That like Peter, we would be bold in declaring what we have heard and seen in this gospel work that has taken place in our own heart. It's the same message. We have the same spirit. The boldness of Peter should be something that is characterized by our own lives. This, this, good, this news is too good not to share. And, and in fact, to be timid and to not share it is to be the very gatekeepers that I was talking about. And, and in a roundabout sort of way, almost determine who is deserving of hearing it and who it is not. Please, let me urge you to look around you, to go out into our community, to let the things we've considered together this morning motivate you. People need to hear this. They need to know that forgiveness of sins is possible through Jesus Christ.